0: Welcome back to the show, Uh, I'm Jay Scott, Uh, Skip will be back with us next week, but moving along now to some soccer talk, I just want to preview and review the FA Cup semis in the quarterfinals, starting off with the Manchester United-Tottenham matchup. Uh, these ma- uh, these matches for the FA Cup semifinals which will take place at Wembley Statum, Stadium the weekend of April 21st and the 22nd have already been drawn and this one undoubt- undoubtedly the top matchup of the two uh, starting to become a rivalry uh, within the Premier League. Uh, both teams splitting this the season series the last two seasons. Manchester United coach Jose Mourinho was not happy with his team's performance against Brighton Hove and Albion in their two nil victory. On the other end, uh, Tottenham they easily went over Swansea three 0 Their top guy Harry Kane. He came into the contest with 37 goals in all competitions this year, but didn't play or contribute much in this one. It was Lorello and Erickson who scored the game-winning goals for Tottenham as they move on in the single elimination tournament. Mm-hmm. Any other matchup that will take place at Wembley? Uh, the the Tottenham Manchester United match that will take place on the 21st, while the second matchup that pitting the two London, two of the Lond- two teams from London, I should say, against one another at Wembley. It will be Chelsea against Southampton. Chelsea outlasted Leicester last Sunday, 2-1 in extra time, and they they've had their uh, share of issues both in league. and in some of the other competitions that they've taken part in. And it was no different Sunday going up against a rather tough Leicester team who, in league, are having a rather respectable year, even though they're not challenging for the title or uh, sitting or in one of the top four places going into next year's Champions League. Uh, But looking back at this game... Uh, they were able. Chelsea. Uh, that's who I'm focusing on here. Uh, they were able to get the game-winning goal in the 105th minute of the con on the contest from Spanish winger Pedro. Uh, currently, Chelsea, the Blues, they sit in fifth in the Premier League table, a uh, few points, or uh, make that five points behind Tottenham, who we'll talk about later in this segment as we look at what's going on in the Premier League. Uh, But other than that, uh, they're having a pretty typical season uh, competing for uh, one of the four Champions League spots. They just got eliminated from the Champions League, uh, but Not as good as the season before, where they topped the charts with 95 points en route to yet another Premiership title. But uh, what's weird is a year later, their coach Antonio Conte might get canned at the end of this year, should they fail to break the top four. But uh, again, we'll get more into the whole Chelsea thing later. But looking at this matchup against Southampton, coming up on the 22nd, uh, Southampton on the other end, uh, they were able to win against uh, second-tier side Wigan 2-0 on Sunday. Southampton currently sit two points from safety in the relegation battle. It's a quite a disappointing season uh, for Southampton, uh, just like it's been for uh, quite a number of your typical middle-of-the-table teams, the likes of West Ham, uh, the likes of Stoke. You know, it's uh, it, West Brom, Albion, for the most part, they usually find a way to stay in the top flight, even though they rarely, uh, for the most part, ever challenge for the title, let alone one of the top four spots in Champions League. But to see them all the way at the bottom of the table with just 20 points with uh, almost eight games remaining in the season, uh, quite a surprise and yet so disappointing. But uh, so with that said, uh, Southampton, on the other hand, even though they sit close to the bottom, Even though that they, uh, they sit so low in the table, uh, I expect them to finish this season strong. Uh, try, try if they will uh, to stay within the top flight and uh, you know continue to get that Premier League money. And I, I expect them to give Chelsea a run for their money in the semi-final at Wembley. Uh although I highly anticipate Chelsea will win, uh creating a top six FA Cup final between Chelsea and whoever wins that uh Manchester United Tottenham match, but shaping up to uh have a decent finish to the season, uh, domestic wise, although I'm not too happy uh Being a United fan, I'm not too happy to see City all the way up in the table, and with that we'll segue from FA Cup talk to the Premier League, where it's City that's all but run away with the title this year, posting a record of 26 wins, 3 draws and 1 loss, Uh, won't be able to top. The 03 04 Arsenal team that went unbeaten. Uh, they already lost a game earlier this season. If I remember correctly, they lost to United's other big time rival, Liverpool. But uh, City could very well top last year's Chelsea team, who uh, posted the most wins in Premier League history with 30. And the 04-05 Chelsea team, who posted the most points in the season, right now City sits in the table with at the top with 85. That Chelsea team from 04-05, who sent the who set the Premier League mark for most points in the season, they did so with 95. And I wouldn't be surprised. In fact, I highly anticipate. City breaking that mark, considering the fact that the that out of their last eight games, six of them come against the likes of Brighton, Hove, Albion, who's uh, right there in their own relegation survival fight. Everton, who even though they're middle of the table, uh, I think City has way more talent. It might be a question of whether or not City dresses all their starters for that match, uh, depending on uh, how much further they go in Champions League. They drew Liverpool for the quarterfinals of that, so they may very well be more focused on that 2 leg series with Liverpool uh, should some of these games interfere with those midweek dates once we get past this ongoing international break. Uh, also, some of the cupcakes that remain on City's schedule include West Ham, Swansea, Southampton, who we just so, just mentioned previously in the FA Cup Talk, and also Huddersfield Town. That was one of the three teams that moved up uh, this season from the championship. That's the second tier of English soccer. But even though the championship race in the Premier League is all but decided, uh, as mentioned before, the relegation battle is pretty hot, as well as the races for the top four and some of those positions going into next year's Champions League, the big highlight of this race to the end, which will begin after the international break on the weekend of the 31st, you have a big match on, uh, I believe it's that Saturday, the 31st, There will be the latest game in the Premier League window that weekend between Chelsea and Tottenham. Uh, that match being played at Stamford Bridge. Tottenham holds fourth. In the Premier League at the moment, five clear of fifth place Tottenham, or fifth place Chelsea, a rival in the city of London. A win by Chelsea would close the gap to two, while a win by Tottenham would spread that to eight. Wow. (laughs) Talk about some high stakes. Uh, Chelsea. Currently leads on goal differential, 27-25, to so should we get down to the brass tacks here late in the season where both of them end up tied on points, that could be huge for Chelsea as they uh, try to uh, finish strong here and maybe save the uh, coaching job of Antonio Conte. But the key to all this is Chelsea holding a 25-match winning streak at the bridge over their rival Tottenham. Uh, I I would think Tottenham are better suited to win this match considering Chelsea has lost four of their last six. But those winning streaks, uh, (laughs) no matter the sport, sometimes they, they could play a major psychological effect. We'll see if this Tottenham side, which is mixed with a lot of youth, with a lot of star power, I'm I'm curious to see what sort of approach they take to this. If they uh, or if they just uh, you know fall to the pressure. This is the first time in a while. Tottenham has had a major game like this where if you don't win this, you're looking at a situation of dropping completely out of the top four and looking at, looking down the barrel at Europe, Europa League football next year. A major drop-off in the amount of money that you could spend or you would be looking to spend this year to try and build around that core of Daly Alley, Harry Kane, Saun, and Erickson. I'm not sure who all of that group they stand to lose uh, this coming summer during the summer transfer window, but less to say, I think the window of opportunity for Tottenham to be uh, challenging for trophies and challenging for top four places or top four finishes I think that's only open for a certain amount of time, and if you don't take advantage of the homegrown talent you have with you at the moment, or some of the cheap additions you were able to add to your team for minimal money and were only able to develop and be able to sell off later down the line for huge sums of money, Uh, it's it's a... Credit and a testament to that organization, but if they don't take advantage of this window of opportunity, it will be all for naught. Moving on to the second place side in the table, and my favorite team, Manchester United, who holds just a two-point lead over their middle rivals, Liverpool. Liverpool, or uh, United rather, stand at four points clear of Tottenham. And it's, you know, why Liverpool and United want to hold their places and not be in Tottenham's shoes uh, beyond having to play this major game next Saturday and uh, risk risk holding just a two point advantage uh, while being behind on goal differential. If you go into the Champions League, just being the fourth team, you have to play a play-in game or a play-in series well before the season starts. So you're not going straight in the group stage and getting that that you know the the money that you get from playing in Champions League, just like where you finish in Premier League, it's divided up based on how you finish. So uh, you know if you it, I'm not sure exactly, you know, what the sums of money and how how it's exactly split, but you could be talking about hundreds of millions of dollars being the difference between playing a play-in series and not doing and losing that and not being in the group stage of Champions League playing six games there where you get three opportunities to sell out your stadium. You get a certain amount of money for having at least made it that far. And if luck's on your side and you get some easy draws, you might be able to collect even more money based on finishing in the quarterfinals or the semifinals. If you're, a, if you're fortunate enough to get that far, which this year, I don't think many English teams have that opportunity Uh, You'll obviously have at least one English team going to the semifinals in the form of either Manchester City or Liverpool, but take United, for example, who had what most thought were an easy draw against Sevilla. Even if they get past Sevilla, do you expect them to also beat, say, Bayern Munich and Real Madrid on their way to beating Barcelona for for the Champions League title this year with all the drama and, you know, all the inconsistent play that they've had? I don't think so. But then again, I'm not one of these crazy, lunatic, stooge United fans that a lot of folks traditionally, uh, you know, associate being a fan of that team with. Behavior-wise. But, nonetheless, you know, it, it's, so, you know, you, you know it's very important to, you know, while everybody talks about the top four and trying to get that far, I think the battle, I, I think the difference between having to play that play-in series to get into the Champions League group stage and not having to do that and qualifying automatic, automatically it's just as important, if not more important. So, with Tottenham being four points back of second, two points back of third, I anticipate a uh, pretty heavy battle be- amongst those three sides as the season draws to a close. But for Liverpool and United, they kind of catch a break after this international break in the season concludes whenever we get back to Premier League play as United will go and visit Swansea while Crystal Palace uh, hosts Liverpool. Uh, speaking of Crystal Palace and Swansea, both of them in a relegation survival battle for their lives. Crystal is just too clear of the relegation zone while Swansea is three. And Swansea... I... Uh, you know, a couple of months ago were good as gone from the top flight. But after going 7-6-1, and one, after getting pounded by Tottenham at the beginning of the year, they find themselves uh, well out of the relegation zone at the moment, sitting at 14th place after sitting in 20th for a good part of the first half of the season. Uh, but as I said earlier, to be seeing the likes of Stoke, Southampton, Welsh, Brom, West Ham all near or at the bottom, it's quite, quite surprising to say the least, uh, considering that most of them are accustomed to either be challenging for that sixth place in the Premier League ta- in the Premier League table that entitles you to a spot in the Europa League, or to just be sitting pretty in ninth or tenth place, just uh, you know, battling for a better payout uh, based on your on your finish from the Premier League. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, usually never. You, you never see those four or five teams, you know, having to battle to survive. I mean, ever since I've been watching soccer and uh, in particular following the club game. In particular in England. I've always been used to seeing Crystal and Swansea going back and forth between top flight and the second tier. You could also throw the likes of Bournemouth and Newcastle too. But to see them even uh, well above the relegation zone is... is, I wouldn't go as far as saying insane but, you know, quite astonishing. And then there's the situation with West Ham. I mean, you know, first you have, you know, the team underachieving the way that they've been, even though they've collected a bunch of, you know, former superstar players like Joe Hart, the former keeper at Man City, Chicharito Hernandez, who used to be a star in both. England and then uh, later on, over in Germany, my my goodness, <laughs> you would, you would think that adding a couple of those to a team that almost never spends uh, would be more than enough to couple the poorest play on the pitch. You had the situation two weeks ago where you had four pitch invasions in one match. Plus a semi-riot amongst the faithful, if you will, or the ultras uh, that were trying to get at the owners and directors of the board at West Ham uh, during their 3-0 drubbing against Burnley, who uh, just in, in line with you know the teams that are surprisingly overachieving and The ones that are surprisingly underachieving, yeah, them right there in seventh trying to get into the top six, that's surprising. That's a team that usually bounces back and forth between the second and third tiers. And now to make matters worse, you have the organization and the City of London and Stadium Committee uh, having disputes over who's going to foot the bill for the increased security and uh, some of the other renovations that should or need to be made, in the opinion of the West Ham team, in order to make it a better home environment. Uh, that's been a common complaint amongst you know teams like West Ham. Uh, it's also been a common complaint uh, for those that... Those like Tottenham who have needed... Uh, to use Wembley for a short period of time, just on a temporary basis. Next year, the replacement for White Hart Lane, uh, closer to Tottenham's old grounds, will be finished, and they'll be playing all their games there. I know last year they played, because that last year was the last season at uh, White Hart Lane, They played all their Premier League games there while having to play all of their... I don't know if they played their cup games, like their domestic cup games, like the League Cup or the FA Cup. I'm not sure if they had to play them at Wembley too last year. But I know because they were in Champions League, they had to play all of those at Wembley. And at first, it was just an awful... Quiet environment for a football team, but this year, and you know, along with the fact that Tottenham are better or they continue uh, this run of top four finishes that they've been on the last few years, that's helped make the environment at Wembley for Tottenham much, much better than the environment at London Stadium for West Ham. And to think that Tottenham really wanted or were competing with West Ham and trying to get the London Stadium after it was used for the 2012 Summer Olympics. But I, I just giggle at this whole talk about lack of environments because this has been a, a a little bit of a talk of the town, if you will, amongst Manchester United faithful and it when it comes to the lack of atmosphere at old Trafford you know <laughs> you know a, a lot of people will you know criticize that it's not as loud and people aren't as singing aren't singing as much at old Trafford but then you go down the list of their failures the way that Jose Mourinho just did last week in trying to justify why United lost to Sevilla or (laughs) try to take the blame off of him. I'm not sure what exactly his main goal of all of that was in trying to go down the whole list of Manchester United's recent European and Premier League failures. But, oh yeah, I'm sure that those recent failures haven't had anything to do with the lack of environment. But I don't know. I mean, you know, last year... Coming into this year, they had uh, they were on a pretty good run of unbeaten games at Old Trafford. So I I, I don't know, but getting back to the West Ham situation, oh, what it comes down to is you gotta play better, you gotta have a legitimate team on the field for them to not be competing for Europa. Uh, or, you know, a, 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 I, I think what would make West Ham fans happy, seriously, is if they would finish in the top half of the table, 10th or better. But to not be anywhere close to that, to be just so damn near to the point of which they're going to get relegated and to have that feeling of doom and gloom, uh, you know, clouding your team. Uh, from inside all the way, you know, through the executive levels of this club. It, it, it's just an all around toxic situation. And, you know, what hasn't helped is trying to plug some of the missing spots on their team with guys that ought to be in MLS or playing in the Chinese Super League. You have to get back to, you have to do things the way Tottenham's been doing where you know they basically developed or you know signed guys that were on the cheap but were younger and developed them through their academy program and eventually were able to trust them enough to throw them into the fire and eventually through that they were able to hit the ground running keep those guys develop those guys and keep them around as long as you can that's got to be the plan for teams like West Ham like Everton like Tottenham, because unless you're going to get... Unless you just have always had the money, like teams like Arsenal and Liverpool and United always have, or you're, you're in a situation... Where, or you can get fortunate enough to transfer into a situation like City, for example, who only started becoming really great when they got all this infusion of cash from the country of Qatar into their team, unless one of those two things happen for you, you're not going to be talking about immediate success. You're just going to be mostly focusing on trying to survive. And in order to move on and eventually progress and thrive, you have to develop from the ground up. You have to do it from the academy level. You have to do it from you know, going to different parts of the world, some people wouldn't venture. It sounds crazy, it sounds silly, but, you know, it's either that way or, you know, settling for fans drawing coins at your owner's face every week. I mean, because even if they were still at Upton Park, even if they were, you know, still in their home base, if this is what they were getting each and every week, I don't think the atmosphere would be that much better. You might think it, you know, it's nice to think and, you know, imagine, you know, what the alternative would have been. But, you know, if you were staring in the face of relegation and then, you know, on top of that, having the situation between your club and the stadium in which you're playing in. Along with, you know, what happened a couple weeks ago, I think, you know, I, I, I don't think it's totally, you know, out of the realm of possibility to, you know, understand the fans' gripes. And that's what can't be lost in all this. While the fans were totally and utterly in the wrong for the situation they caused, you know, a few weeks back against Burnley... Uh, you know, boy, do they have, you know, a lot to gripe about, but it should never be done in that way. And, you know, some of the things that this organization could could or should, uh, consider going forward, you know, maybe London Stadium just isn't the fit. I mean, you know, going back to when Wimbledon FC, uh, You know, that's a second, now third-tier side. You know, back when they used to be challenging towards getting towards the top flight, they used to have, you know, in that part of London, they used to have, you know, a major fan base that would support this team. But whenever their old stadium got old and decrepit, they moved to a different part of London, Milton Keys. Where they renamed the team MK Dons, and you know that led to their own share of unique backlash and outrage, and that led to the formation by a fan group uh, that created a whole new team called AFC Wimbledon, uh, which will soon be building a brand new stadium on the old ground of former of uh, the former team that used to play in that part of London. Wimbledon FC, so the point is you can always go back home and that might be you know, you may not ever be able to go back to Upton Park but you could always go back to that part of town and maybe look at building a 20-30,000 to 30,000 seat stadium because I, I think King Power Stadium where Leicester plays is only about 30,000, you know not every stadium is like Anfield or Old Trafford Uh, where it's, you know, sixty to 70,000 seats. And in some cases, whenever you're a newly promoted side, it would be crazy to go and have that big of a stadium and expect to fill it up every week. But, you know, if if two or three years down the line, this whole London Stadium situation only gets worse, because it (laughs) already sounds like it's getting worse before it gets any better... Realistically, you might have to go back to where, where Upton Park was and build a new stadium there. And just, you know, cut your losses. And, you know, this crap show that's been uh, this experiment at London Stadium, call it a failure and move on. It's what the Islanders in the NHL are pretty much having to do. You know, they got that sweet deal, or what at the time looked like a sweet deal, from the Barclays Center. And, you know, I, I mean, amongst... I've never seen a game there, but, I mean, amongst some of the complaints... Very very similar to the complaints that the West Ham uh, fans have about London Stadium. Lack of atmosphere. Uh, it's not as close to Long Island as the old Coliseum was or where this newer place that they, uh, you know, just got the okay on building in Belmont Park close to the racetrack there. I don't think... I, I would hope not... I would hope that they're not tearing down the Belmont Park track to build a brand new arena and canceling uh, one-third of the triple crowd. And that seems to be a surefire money maker for everybody involved, but... No, somewhere around that racetrack, I guess they just got land, uh, okayed and bought, and they'll be uh, and financed, and they'll be building a brand new arena in that lo- around that location for the Islanders to move into. I think by 2021, I think next year and the following year they're going to be playing a couple they're going to be splitting their their home schedule between Barclays and the renovated Coliseum. The Coliseum where the Islanders used to play it used to be about used to have a capacity of about 17,000, but with the recently finished renovations that were just made to make it so it could host concerts, can make it so it could host I think some smaller basketball games, I think in particular the Brooklyn Nets, uh, minor league affiliate plays there, it, it just it wasn't renovated in order to play host to an NHL team 41 nights out of the year, that's that's the point and that's why they're not moving back into that uh, full term, but they will play I think anywhere between 12 to 14 home games the next Couple seasons in the old Coliseum before they move into this new place, but uh, yeah, and you know, I mean, hopefully for the Islanders' sake uh, that works out for them. But any, but closer is always better, and that's the reality of it. That may be what West Ham, in conclusion, has to do in order to win back some of their fan base. But until then, I almost expect more. Of the turmoil, turmoil, more of the protesting, more of the uh, outrage from West Ham fans, and it will only get worse if and when they get dropped from the top flight all the way to the championship. And now we finish up this week's edition of Sports Tap with Last Call, and this week's Last Call will be focused on Major League Baseball and the owner's cheapness. So far, the, and this is coming into today, Uh, this may change if you have listened, if you listen to this podcast a couple weeks later, but the current list of unrestricted free agents in baseball, uh, just about five or six of them now is to include Jose Bautista, These are guys that are still unsigned, and we're already into, what, the third week of spring training? Guys that are still on the market include Jose Bautista, the former slugger of the Toronto Blue Jays, Melky Cabrera, who's been a pretty decent mercenary type guy that you bring in at the deadline. Uh, I think he had a pretty good season last year slugging-wise. Uh, Greg Holland, pretty solid relief pitcher, righty. Uh, Matt Holliday, uh, who's I guess now settled into the role of designated hitter, but can also play outfielder. had a had a bad season last year, but overall brings some power to the plate. John Lackey, who again, who also had a bad season last year, but Uh, resume is pretty solid, should at least be entitled to a job somewhere. And last but not least, and these are just about five or six of the guys that I saw that were unsigned. I'm sure that there's plenty more still available, and ties into my larger point. Brandon Phillips, uh, former All-Star second baseman, still available after a one-year stint with the Atlanta Braves. So, you have all these free agents still available, and you also have guys who, if they are signed, have had to settle with for one-year deals worth a fraction of what they ought to be making. Notable examples include Manny Machado, who re-signed with the Baltimore Orioles for a one-year, $16 million contract, and Mike, Mustakis, the first baseman out of Kansas City who re-signed with the Royals for a 1 to 2 year option deal worth somewhere in the range of 6 million to 22.6 million overall if he gets signed on for that second year. There's been very very few big money deals. I know Eric Hosmer got a big brought in a nice load signing for 8 years, 145 million with the Padres. A couple of weeks ago, you had Jake Arrieta, who two years ago just had a monstrous season for the Chicago, for the World Series Chicago Cubs. Was on the was out there in free agency for the longest time before getting signed by the Philadelphia Phillies for three years, seventy five million guaranteed. But this hasn't been the first time, nor has this uh, has. This year and the previous year have been the only two years in which this uh, trend has been playing out. It's been going on for a while, uh, really, since ever since Anaheim signed Albert Pujols and Josh Hamilton to uh, to dual uh, blockbuster deals worth both worth over 150 million each. Uh, individually. I think pool Hose's deal was worth closer to $300 million guaranteed, while Hamilton, he only signed for about five years, and uh, that deal is about to expire this year after uh, having gotten some of that money uh, from both Anaheim and Texas uh, after being on the shelf and out of baseball for a majority of that deal. But that wasn't the only bad deal. Uh, You also had the Seattle Mariners who signed a pretty large, ridiculous deal with Robinson Cano. I think that one was worth over 250 million. If I'm not mistaken, I think that was a 10 year deal. So the point is, you know, you can understand from the owner's point that they don't want to get burned. On these deals because unlike in football, unlike in a lot of sports, whenever you sign a deal in baseball, it's a guaranteed deal. If that player decides to retire or he gets hurt or something happens to him, you're still due that money to him, whether it comes in a big lump sum or it comes in annual payments, just like the ridiculous deal the New York Mets are still having to pay a $1. Bobby Bonilla who never played a game for the Mets and that and I don't even think that deal was worth nearly as much money as any of these deals that were signed, you know, 10 years later or worth. I think that was only worth in the range of 30 something million to about 50 million and will finally die in the year 2032. If I'm not mistaken, but every July 1st, he'll get it. He gets a check for 1.1 million and that's with no games played. I know back in 2001, or was that 2002? Derek Bell, the former Pittsburgh Pirate first baseman, got pissed off about having to compete for an outfield job. This coming after a 100 loss season and he decides, screw this, I'm not doing this. I'm going on my yacht and going into Operation Shutdown. Even though he never played a single game, not even a spring training game for the Pirates that year, the Pirates organization still had to pay him about $4 million. I think that's all he was at. Thankfully, but hilariously, that that's the truth. So you can get that. But whenever you have situations like in Pittsburgh, where the Pirates still had a decent core in place, but never ever really spent to build around that. You, you could pick any one of the three years where they actually made the playoffs. Or one of the four years around that time span where they didn't, but they were close. And never once do you see them going out and getting one or two... Really trying to make a concerted effort to plug all the holes that they can in order to give them the best possible opportunity to win a championship. Look at all the all the trade deals that they made at the deadline or after, whenever you could still make deals through waivers, in that time span compare and compare that to the deals and some of the transactions, Cleveland. A similar sized market team has made ever since their current group has come up and started competing for division titles, and later uh, going back to 2016, they actually competed for a World Series, coming up one game short, one inning short, uh, you know, whatever, whatever excuse, whatever term, whatever setting you you, you know serves your serves your purpose there. They came up oh so short, but they put a lot of money into that team. It started off that year with just acquiring Andrew Miller, a top free agent uh, closer. He ended up, I think he ended up turning out to, no, he ended up being their setup man. Because they still had a pretty decent closer at the time. And then a year later, they were able to get Jay Bruce, who... You know that if the Pirates were seriously interested in competing for a wild card spot last year, they would have made an attempt to get him, Lucas Duda, and probably Jose Quintana, who embarrassingly they had the chance to get a year before, just for Tyler Glasnow and, and or yeah Tyler Glassnell and Austin Meadows. Who uh, are both turning out to be busts. You know, that's all they had to give up to get a guy like Quintana. But as per usual with this ownership group, they were in this front office group in particular. There was no urgency or sense of urgency to spend, there was no willingness to get rid of guys that. Neil Huntington, the general manager, and some within the organization, still regarded as top blue-chip prospects, even though when Tyler Glasnow came up early in the season last year, he was anything but. And we may never even see Austin Meadows come up and play in a major league uniform at this point with how many injuries that young man has suffered. But along with not willing to spend, they've gotten rid of the likes of Andrew McCutcheon and Garrett Cole for a couple of lame duck deals that garnered them practically nothing uh, from opposing teams uh, from Houston and San Francisco, respectively. Then there's the case of the Miami Marlins, who just, you know, boasted about this new ownership group featuring Derek Jeter taking over. And then what do they do? To first order of business, what do they do? They ship off Giancarlo Stanton and then Ye- later Christian Yelich, amongst some of their top young core players that they could have built around. Uh, earlier this week, there was a report online where the front front office actually blamed the Jose Fernandez death on why they had to take this step and cutting all this payroll. I I mean, it's just a mess. Then you have Kansas City, who, after winning a World Series championship two years ago, uh, got rid, or let Lorenzo Cain and Eric Hosmer walk away. But, at least they kept Mike Moustakis. Maybe they may, I, I know that they also added John Jay, and they may very well add some pieces at the deadline, but point is each one of, each one of the 30 teams received 50 million dollars apiece in the sale of Tech, that was the old major league baseball streaming arm that powered their streaming app MLB TV they sold that to disney for just well over a billion dollars and each team in turn got 50 million dollars apiece which needed or should have been spent on payroll. Instead, the Pirates, along with... <laughs> and, you know, no pun intended, going along with their namesake. They took that $50 million, pocketed it, and then made a trade uh, where they dealt Daniel Hudson, a injury-prone reliever. They traded him off to the Tampa Bay Rays, and in return... Which they got uh, Corey Dickerson, the all-star left fielder, which, if you make that move last year, you probably have a great shot at challenging for the division, especially last year with all the teams that were down, but this year it just feels like it was a last-ditch effort and trying to sell up opening day, which for most teams is an easy sell up, but... After you ship off two of your top talent guys for practically nothing, uh, it's going to be a hard sale. But after all of this going on in baseball, what's next? Will the players strike? After all, many solid free agents still remain unsigned. You see this greed amongst the owners with no minimum required investment forced upon them. Where is it going to go? I would, I would think that a strike is necessary. You know, if you want to, uh, you know, stop this stagnant of spending by the owners. But you run into the issue of do our guys willing to pass up a paycheck in order to make a stand? I'm sure the guys that are well off are willing to, but for the younger guys, the guys coming from, not even just ghettos and bad neighborhoods here in the States, but coming from slavery and, you know, drug dealers and just the environment that plagues a country full of drug manufacturing and drug trafficking, like Colombia, Venezuela, the Dominican Republic, the places that Donald Trump would call shithole countries, uh... Yeah, no offense by that, but you know, places like that where you know, major league baseball gets a lot of their talent, you know, I don't know how many how many of those guys would be willing to go forward on a strike in order to get the owners to spend more. I mean, they were you know, players back in 94 when the money wasn't even, you know, near this close to inflation, were willing to do it. You didn't have anywhere near this amount of money invested in baseball. But from then, you got the revenue sharing, so there was some mon- more money going around. And in turn, more middle to small market teams were able uh, t- uh, to compete in turn. But at this point, with no minimum... With guys, with the owners being able to find their way around revenue sharing and being able to still profit while putting very little back into the team, it's scary to think, for the players' sake, what the future may hold if they don't strike or they don't force a lengthy lockout once the CBA comes up in a couple years. So... It's even though baseball is raring and ready to go, and everybody's all excited, looking ahead, and you know, maybe that comes from a pirate fan that has nothing to look forward to this year. So take all of this with a grain of salt if you must, if you find this bias. But I, I, I fear to see what might happen to the game of baseball, in particular for the players, if they don't finally stand up for themselves. If they don't try to end this behavior on the part of the owners where they're practically letting guys stay on free agency in uh, by just uh, in return just accepting scabs or guys that aren't nearly as talented, aren't not nearly as experienced in order to take their place, in order to keep the show going. It would be scary to think if that's what guys are willing to settle for In order to continue the profit at the rate that they already do. So in order to stop that, you're going to have to cause a disruption to their plans. And that will come at the rate of forcing a strike and pissing off a lot of baseball purists that may or may not have come back quickly after the last strike. They may have left uh, when that happened in 94 and either never, never came back or came back but on the condition that they never strike or hold a lengthy stri- lockout again. But with what's going on now, I, <laughs> I if there was ever a time for a strike and a need for a lengthy negotiation between the players' union and the owners, uh, this is it right here. And if they don't, it's only going to... It's only going to be a negative for the players if they don't sooner rather than later. But with that said, that's all I got for you on this edition of Sports Tap. On the next show, we we'll, me, Skip should be back. And at that time, we'll debate the NHL and NBA MVP races. I'll also go into depth about the upcoming Champions League Quarterfinals while also giving you a recap of what's about to go down on the Premier League stage going into the final weeks of the season. And we'll also talk about the early season contenders for the World Series and Major League Baseball as opening day quickly approaches. If you want to get in touch with me, you can get, you can follow me on Twitter at uppercase J dot uppercase S, Mart. 66, or you can email me at jscott.martin54 at gmail.com. For Skip Smith, I'm J. Scott Martin. Thank you for listening to Sports Tap. Until next time, folks, we'll see ya.